0: AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for ATT Threat Track.
1: So, Stan, we have a story with uh, phishing attacks using QR codes. Any more about that?
0: Yes, I was reading this blog entry from uh, cofence.com and uh, they n- noticed that there was a phishing attack uh, recently uh, that instead of a phishing URL where you're asked to click on something, it's actually a very official looking email, but it has a QR code. Mm. And you're supposed to use your phone to then scan the code to retrieve maybe some sort of a document or visit some sort of a page. And when you do, uh, you're probably gonna use your like personal device or something like that to do that, right, because most people have their phone. And it takes you straight to the phishing URL and you're gonna see a page that's gonna look Like the exact page where you're going to want to log in to something, Mm. Uh, just a regular phishing attack.
1: You know, it is fairly innovative to put a QR code in your phishing email, force somebody to scan it with their phone, now
0: it automatically goes out to the URL. Uh, We're always told to be careful what we click on uh, and to scan the URLs, but there's no really good way to like scan a barcode or a QR code. Uh, before clicking on it. Right. So the only defense you don't have is on your mobile, you gotta look very carefully at the top of the bar and make sure that wherever you're entering your credentials is the right spot. But on mobile phones, it's a lot harder to see that URL bar um, than you know on a traditional browser. Um, in fact, I hate to admit this, but it's happened to me a few times where I've wound up on different websites where, you know, it's really difficult to distinguish real from fake.
1: So is the payload of the malicious URL, eventual URL, targeted for mobile devices? So, I mean, is there something specific about about what you go to that is specific to target mobile devices, since that's probably what you'll use to scan the code?
0: Um, I don't think so other than the web page just being looking like it fits your mobile device and just looking very natural uh, For you to log in you are presented with like a log on prompt to some service
1: So it's just fishing for your credentials It's It's basically
0: fishing for your credentials. I imagine you can do anything anything with that with this way, you know Target mobile devices or people checking for this. I guess for me It's very interesting because on the detection side um, for if you're gonna deploy some sort of an appliance Uh, to detect against phishing campaigns. A lot of, uh, you know, security providers or security appliances, they're searching URLs. But nobody is really, like, looking at QR codes, uh, at least today, that I know of. Uh, So most analysis systems are trained to look at URLs. This one not having one would probably not cause any detection.
1: So is there a one-to-one mapping of QR code to URL?
0: Generally, yes. Okay. basically a qr code it you've you've probably seen it it's got all those black squares right right so inside those black squares is a bunch of text uh, and the text generally tells you like open an app and and the parameters for that application so if it contains a url most phones know open the browser and go there. That's like actually the default action.
1: So if you had something that was doing URL protection, it would still potentially pick it up even though?
0: Correct. Now, it's an interesting observation that the researchers made, which uh, is interesting, uh, is uh, that if you're going to be using your personal device and you receive this phishing email on your corporate account, then you might not be protected with all the same mm. corporate technologies, let's say, like the IDS systems or your proxy. Right. And you might visit that and actually fall prey to the attack. Um, the other issue might be is if you're getting this as a corporate user, you, you're presented with these you know phishing pages, you might put your... Corporate credentials into these phishing pages Mm. and not your personal ones. Right, right. Unless, of course, they're one and the same, which hopefully is not the case.
1: Right. Jaime, any thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, actually,
2: this reminds me of a story I heard once uh, from, from, a, from a friend. So he was working with this company in, in the Bay Area. It was a big tech company. So they invited all the employees to a team building that was in a baseball stadium. And then the red team basically hijacked one of the big TVs and included a QR code there. So when employees you know, use the phone to get the QR code, you know they they got fish, so that was part of a of a red teaming exercise that they they did. So I mean that was pretty cool and, and related to what Estan uh, was describing.
1: Yeah, I guess it just shows that there's no uh, no vector that's not exploited. You know everything's fair game for you know adversaries right? right
0: exactly and for users it can be difficult when you know you're looking at something like mechanized like this that's intended to be interpreted by a computer or by a mobile device there's no way you can really easily protect yourself unless you're extra vigilant about where you eventually wind up uh, just double check the URL before entering any information and make sure Uh, especially on a mobile device, you kind of have to scroll up a little to see that bar. So just follow precautions, general precautions, uh, like you would with any email. Hey, Jaime, I think you have a very interesting topic today about uh, threat intelligence
2: yeah so we want to talk about uh, you know how threat intelligence is critical for threat detection and, and instant response but then when when this threat intelligence and the threat actors uh, try to mesh with with those indicators and, and that information that is being shared, it can be actually uh, you know bad for for companies so we are going to share some of the experience we have managing uh, the open threat exchange that is one of the biggest uh, threat sharing communities out there and, and some of the stories that uh, and, and that we have seen so far.
0: Jaime did mention that they have uh, so much of threat, so many threat indicators and so much threat intelligence as part of OTX, uh, the platform.
2: Uh, I mean, we know attackers are monitoring these platforms and are adjusting tactics and techniques and probably the infrastructure uh, based on, on public reaction to you know, c- cybersecurity companies sharing their activities in blog posts and other reporting. An example is you know, t- September 2017, uh, we saw APT28, uh, you know, it, it became really harder to track because we were using some of the infrastructure and some of the techniques that, uh, you know, it was significantly easier to track based on that. And, you know, another cybersecurity company published about that, and then APT28 became uh, much more difficult to track. The other example is APT1. If, if you remember the peak APT1 report in, in 2013 that Mandiant published, uh, that, com- that made the group basically disappear uh, from-, from the face of-, of Earth, right? Like, we didn't see them for a while. And then they changed the, the infrastructure. They changed uh, a-, a lot of the tools that they were using. But then they came back uh, in 2014. So we-, we-, we can see that that threat actor uh, disappeared for a while. They changed and rebuilt, and then they came back. We also know that you know attackers can pa- try to publish false information in in these platforms. So that's why it's important that not only uh, those platforms are au- automated, but also there are human analysts that can verify uh, that 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 information.
1: But also, it seems like you have to sort of have a process of validating the intelligence, right? I think part of it is you don't want to take this intelligence sort of at face value without having some expertise of your own that says you know is this valid? Is this a false positive? Is this, like you said, is this planted by the adversary in order to throw off the scent? So, you know, I think it's one of those things where you can't automatically trust, like you said, threat intelligence. You have to do some of your own diligence to really validate the intelligence, make sure it makes sense, make sure it's still uh, it's still fresh, it's still good. Uh, you know, this is something we're working on internally, is sort of creating those other layers to to validate and, and create a value of threat intelligence.
2: The other issue I wanted to, to bring to the table is you know, what we call false flag operations, and that's when an, an adversary or a, a threat actor studies another threat actor and tries to emulate that behavior. So uh, you know when companies try to do attribution, it, it's much harder. right? So we, we saw that, for instance, uh, uh, in some of the Lazarus campaigns, you know, some of the, the campaigns that we saw that were started in banks, uh, you know, they were trying to look like they were Russian, uh, but it was clear that, you know, Lazarus was behind that. So they were trying to, uh, you know, to confuse uh, cybersecurity companies planting some, some false flags here and there.
1: So Jaime, are there any techniques that you could, you know, refer to or recommend for finding false flags? Is it is it usually easy to find or, you know, just something you kind of over time you get better at or what could you share in that area?
2: So it's, it's extremely hard and, 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 and again as we always say attribution is, is really hard and, and no one can really do attribution really well and, and there is no like one thing you can do. Uh, what I have seen from the past is like as you are analyzing a certain adversary uh, if you see something like sometimes there is like a red flag in your head saying wait a minute I haven't seen that before. Uh, It's it's really weird that this actor in particular is using that technique or uh, this piece of infrastructure doesn't fit in my other clusters. Uh, So it's more, you know, an art than really a science.
0: There's an old trick that detectives use when they're like analyzing a crime scene or analyzing a crime, is when they report about it publicly, they don't actually disclose all of the things about the crime so that when they do catch the bad guy, only the bad guy can confirm mm. what, what happened or what really transpired, and nobody else can kind of claim credit for it. I know like from analyzing malware for a long time, there's some things that you kind of tend to see, different adversaries use certain tactics, but they're not like worthy of publishing. You know, you can't really like talk to, about them or describe them. But when you see it, you know that like Jaime mentioned, they don't align you know like this adversary yeah it's they're trying to use the same tactic but it's not quite the same as Mm. what you saw before so that's probably a good way to i think about the the false flags
1: cool thanks i think it's an interesting discussion to sort of understand the motivations sometimes behind threat intelligence and also you know what factors go into to validating it
2: Uh, I think you have an interesting story about anesthesia devices that that you wanted to share with us.
1: Yeah, Um, so GE has a couple anesthesia devices, the Estiva and Aspire device, and uh, a group of researchers, CyberMDX, found that they basically have no authentication whatsoever. (laughs) So anybody who gets on the network, so the internal hospital network, if these devices are connected to a network. Um, they can basically get into the anesthesia device and start making changes. If an adversary can get into the hospital's network, they can make their way into these devices, then there's a real, real severe set of things that they could affect with these devices. You know, anesthesia is a pretty a, elaborate science and, you know, based on body composition and, age and weight and all kinds of you know there's different levels so you can in this software you can change those levels which is crazy that someone could get in and do that and then you can change all the timestamps so you know any timestamp that's used for audits or for records uh, to see how long you know each level was at, you can change all that so a a kind of a a really eye-opening level of of penetration that can happen with this vulnerability uh, and then another interesting thing is that GE kind of downplays it and says well you know we're not patching it necessarily just don't connect it to the network
0: right which sometimes <laughs> uh, is not the best defense because these networks can be uh, uh, compromised easily right
1: but I mean just to, to think that the the solution is to not connect to the network I mean that's basically you're taking a, a modern advanced technology and bringing it back 30 years you know and you know they say if you do connect to a network use a secure uh prompt system which who knows what that is no recommendations so um you know and then there the also g says that anything with software after 2009 disables the ability to modify the gas composition. So
0: I guess that's, you know, there's some level of upgrade there. Uh, No patch, some upgrade. Um, So I'm glad to hear Joe mentioned that there were already a lot of uh, researchers and uh, I think he mentioned uh, CERT was uh, issuing guidelines and policies.
1: So CERT put out a a standards that said, you know, all the policies and guidelines for these devices so definitely seen some response in terms of how this kind of device should be used um whether you know this is above board or not uh GE also put out some policies and best practices and uh you know just interesting we don't talk about medical devices very often but i think you know it's pretty pretty clear that you know vulnerabilities and protection from adversaries is is pretty well universal now and you have to keep your eye open for this stuff in every
0: uh, you know every area so yes it's, it's definitely very scary if somebody was able to compromise these and actually I would say if I think about compromises in general like major ones over the last five years or so, most of them have happened by penetrating like a weaker device on the network and then propagating to the more important uh, devices out there but i'm glad that security researchers are doing this research because that's kinda what uncovers these type of implementation issues or at least gets the conversation started some of these devices might not have the capability to have some of these things implemented like security wise uh... but at least knowing that those are issues and then working towards policies and standards uh, for figuring out like, how should devices like this operate in the future? Right. uh, I think that's a good place for us to be.
1: It's one of those things that's interesting and unique and research until someone exploits it. You know, when someone exploits something like this, it's headlines, it's, oh my God, I can't believe anybody ever did this. But when we're at this stage where it's, you know, an interesting research activity, it's still something that can be fixed and addressed, you know? Any thoughts on this, Jaime?
2: I I also agree that if you're not going to use that device in terms of, like, you know, don't connect it to the network, right? Like, if you don't need it to, uh, you know, exchange data with other devices, or if you're not using the functionality at all, I don't see why you would like to connect, uh, you know, that type of device to the network. So, you know, always think about that before, before you put these type of devices, because, you know, I always have conversations with, with uh, CISOs and you know security professionals that work for, for hospitals and other places, and when I, you know, when 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 I talk to them and they are like, well, people tell us, you know, just keep devices up to date and apply patches, but then they look at me and it's like, do you really believe we can do that, right? Like these devices may not have, you know, updates for the last 10 years, and you know there is no, you know, I cannot even scan for vulnerabilities, right, because. I, I may affect uh, how those devices, uh, you know, uh, work just by you know opening a port in, in that device. So they need to be super careful when when they are scanning for that. And as I said, they may not even have patches for for those vulnerabilities. So I think the best thing to do is don't connect it to the network if, if you if, if if you don't need to. Right.
1: Agree. If you don't need to connect a device, this. Uh, sensitive to the network, yeah. Maybe you can avoid plugging it into a, a cart and uh, connecting it to your, you know, local network. What does the internet weather look like this week, Stan?
0: Well, we have pretty much similar activity as we normally see. So let me show you. Okay. So this is our top ten most pro ports. We have all of the same ports that we generally cover. Uh, port 23, TCP, telnet, uh, a bunch of web ports, uh, 3389, RDP. So one of the things I've been taking a look at is port 445 TCP, which is related to SMB, the file sharing protocol and other related services. Uh, so we'll take a look at that and see what that looks like um, this week. Okay. And the next thing that we like to look at is the same um, uh, scanning activity against ports But this time, we organize the data by the number of sources uh, probing. Again, this week, there are no surprises. Everything that we see is something that we've seen before. Uh, There's not many fluctuations. So I'd like to revisit um, and look at port 8291-TCP, which is something that we looked at um, the last time I was here and see what that looks like. So looking back 60 days on the number of devices scanning for this port, uh, we could see some interesting trends. So near nothing in May, and then you see these uh, spikes every so often, and some of them are bigger and some of them are taller. Um, and this red arrow is approximately where we were the last time we talked about this port activity. You could see that, let's say during this peak, there were you know, almost 7,000 devices per hour scanning for this port all together in concert all of a sudden. So we could see is something that started about two weeks ago is the sustained activity from all of the devices scanning kind of all of the time, instead of kind of coming in and out. It seems like uh, the adversary uh, who's operating the botnet uh, on this port uh, changed tactics um, now that there are, there is sustained scanning from many devices uh, continuously.
1: So what do we know about this port?
0: That's a good question. So I did a little bit of, Googling around and I found this older article and it's related to a management port on microtech routers Mm. Um, So back then there was a botnet widely reported We talked about it as well called Hajime. Right one of the bigger ones from what I remember. Yes Um, And it was basically targeting the port because there was uh, a vulnerability Um, and this is how the uh, flow of the exploitation activity looked I actually always like to look in the articles that have this level of detail because it helps me understand um, how, to do, how do you detect this activity and how do you look for it. Um, so I decided to take a look in our honeypot to see what do we see in the honeypot against this port. Because if there's all this sustained scanning, then surely we'll, you know, some of it will stumble on our honeypot and maybe we'll get to see is there a new exploit. Is it still related to that, or are there other things? There's research, right. See. Exactly. Right. Uh, what kind of scanning activity is it? So one of the things I do is I try to say for a specific port, what is the distribution of different um, protocols that get detected on that port? So the honeypot is capable of determining what is the pro- you know, what the other side is trying to do. Is it trying to do RDP, which looks like about 25% of the time? Uh, HTTP, which is what I would expect, because this is like an alternate web port. Um, there's even something called Foundation DB, which is a type of database, um, or other uh, variants of HTTP or SSL. So looking at just the HTTP activity, the, the one thing that makes sense to look at is some of the URIs that are being requested by adversaries. And one of them exactly matches the URI pattern we saw earlier on the earlier slide, where uh, from the description of the article, so this JS proxy URI, this is what an exploit attempt would try to. Uh, So that's probably from the
1: Microtik router?
0: It's potentially from a Microtik router. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do in this case is I say, well, has this IP address done anything else against the honeypot? And when I explore it that way, I was able to see that it's just this one IP address in Asia. It's responsible for scanning, you know, for every time against the honeypot for this. And he's Mm -hmm. actually hitting multiple different ports and hitting multiple different protocols, not just this. So it's likely they're just using, like, a scanning tool. Um, Okay, so what now? So whenever you have um, a lot of coordinated scanning, it's always interesting to see where is that scanning coming from. So this is just a geographic representation of where the IP addresses are emanating from. And usually it lets you know, is there maybe a specific country uh, that's more interesting for, for this vulnerability? Why? Because if it was like a vulnerable device or something like that, Maybe it's only in a part of a certain region of the world. Maybe it's a router that's used by a specific ISP in a specific country. And what's interesting here is you do see hotspots in Southeast Asia, India, and Brazil, as well as uh, Northern Africa there, and a little bit in the Middle East as well. So, just another way to look at the activity and try to understand it. It's interesting to see that you can almost
1: diagnose the advances in in adversary's use of a botnet, that this is probably the same vulnerability, the same target. It seems to be associated with a,
0: a Microtik router uh, vulnerability that was found about a year and a half ago. So we've been tracking activity on port 445 for some time. This is a view of 900 days of uh, port 445 scanning activity probably remember this weekend right here, or mid-2017, WannaCry came out, big in the news, a big deal. The activity, if you could zoom in on that, you'd see the activity really significantly drop and started creeping back up until it got uh, to you know many thousands of devices being impacted. So the number of devices being impacted seemed to have been creeping down. So last time I was on the show, like in April, things seemed to be going well. Then uh, the next time I was on the show, things seemed to plateau. Things started decreasing and decreasing again. So I wonder what you think is gonna happen this week when I show you the next chart.
1: I think I was on the show last time you uh, asked for a response in this. So I'm gonna say it's gonna continue to to decrease.
0: That's right, yes. so you got it. And this is good news on both fronts. Number one, you're right. And number two, <laughs> the activity is going down. Uh, you could see we're a long way from the old worm that that's used true. to impact this port. Um, but there is a downward trend and that's a positive thing. Yeah, now, I mean, the
1: su- again though, the sustained scanning is remarkable. because I, mean, yes. I mean, I know we've talked about this in the past, but that initial Level of scanning was from Conficker, right? The Configer worm. Yes. The, the remnant exactly. scanning from Conficker. and now if we got to that level of scanning, we would be, you know, all of our, all of our top ten lists would be changed. That you know, the 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 amount and volume of scanning in the network today yes. compared to what it was, you know, even a few years ago, yes. is just it's remarkable. So. I agree. Um, But yeah, I mean, hopefully this means that more patching is being done, uh, more upgrades, more awareness, and, you know, eventually it will get to a much more manageable level. But uh, yeah, progress,
0: I guess. Uh, Yes, one little itty-bitty piece at a time, but it's uh, encouraging nonetheless. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. All right. Uh, And that's it for the Internet Weather this week. The views expressed on at and Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.